Well, welcome everybody to the third episode of the Riddles in the Dark Super Erogatory. I've been working overtime on pronouncing that word, so... <laughs> Um, and this week we're going to review the Riddles in the Dark episodes 3.04 and 3.05, and we're going to be talking uh, quite a bit about Lake Town. And this is Laura Burkholt, and I'm here with the Tolkien professor, Corey Oson. Well, hello. Good to uh, get a chance to go back over. You know, it's fun uh, returning to uh, sort of, sort of the, these these riddles and topics after after uh, some time has gone by since we first discussed them. Um, you know, I keep occasionally saying things like, "What was I thinking exactly?" Like, not not that I'm second guessing myself, but that I can't even really remember. Uh, it's fun to uh, it's fun to review these things and think about them again, especially after we've you know I, on the main show been considering other things. So. It's always really good to go back and, and think over these things again, um, and especially when uh, uh, when sort of prompted by uh, so many excellent uh, comments from listeners. So I'm really uh, thankful to everybody who's been submitting stuff and hope you will continue to do so. We should probably actually start off at the beginning by going over again to make sure people know the methods by which they can yes. uh, submit their comments um, and uh, yep. in, in, in hopes that, you know, many more of the good comments from our listeners who haven't contributed yet will also make it into our list of reviewer comments here. Yeah, that's right. So uh, there's a couple different ways. You can post on Facebook, the Facebook post for the episode, and we get some great comments there, but they have to be kind of short. Um, if you have a longer comment, uh, we've actually disabled comments on the um, the MythGuard website because of a robot attack. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. Which is yeah. Con which continues to to go on, by the way. We we've been a continual uh, target of cyber attacks for several months now. Uh, but our, yeah. our 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 defenses are are improved and we're doing fine. But um, but yeah, yeah that, that's been a continual problem. You know, it's interesting that happened right after you recorded the Ender's Game series. <laughs> I hope it's not the buggers. Yeah, exactly. No, I doubt it. See, it turns out they turns out they didn't mean us any harm, anyhow. So it's that's fine. right. That's oh, spoiler alert! <laughs> spoiler alert! Oh dear! Um, spoiler alert! <laughs> so, so if you have a longer comment, go ahead and send those to me at uh, at Burkholtz B E R K H O L T Z at um, at MythGuard dot org, I believe it is. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, and uh, so we're going to go ahead and jump right in. We're going to uh, cover Riddles in the Dark 3.04, and the riddle for that episode was, how will Bard escape from prison? And the answers were, A, he escapes on his own, B, the dwarves get him out, perhaps with help from Tariel, C, Bard's son gets him out, and D, a combination of B and C, and then E, of course, none of the above. So, and Corey, you said you said B, the dwarves get him out. Uh, Trish said D, combination of dwar the dwarves and Bard's son. I, Bain, I have a hard time saying that. Well, I think they're just going to call him Bane in the movie. Bane, I, I, yeah, it's I, not. I it's definitely not Bane, but yeah. Oh well, for the, Ease of pronunciation, we can call him Bane, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, Dave said B, just the dwarves. Um, and I'm going to say D. I'm going to say it's the dwarves and Bane, just because I think that um, 
they're going to want to get that the black arrow to Bard right away. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they're going to be spending a lot of time searching for the black arrow. I think Bane right. is going to be right there and give him the black arrow. I agree. Yeah, to me, the question sort of rests on where the initiative is going to lie there. You know, like, I mean, Bane mm-hmm. was last seen running off with the black arrow and, and clearly... It's it's really impossible for me to imagine that he's not going to be involved somehow, you know, with his dad in the shooting of the dragon, especially given the fact that that speech about, you know, Girion not missing the dragon and, you know, knocking loose the scale was put into Bane's mouth in the second film. So that sense which Bane himself clearly has of, you know, this sort of uh that 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 clear desire to recover the family shame you know as you know, with the master of lake town talking about how Girion missed and caused all the trouble but we've already heard bane defending Girion's legacy and everything you know so the way in which they 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 made that obviously a family concern and bane very sen- sensitive to that fa- uh, fa- family concern um it just you know that combined with the fact that he was the last one seen running off with the black arrow in his hands makes it absolutely impossible for me to imagine he's not going to participate. But to me, the big question about whether or not um, he is getting uh, getting barred out is the question of to what extent he's going to initiate the thing. You know, is 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 are the dwarves going to be coming and initiating it? Um, you know, and then like they, you know. He, ben meets up with him, or Ben finds them afterwards. I don't know, but um, uh, well, or is or is Ben going to be the one who's like, I got to break my dad out of prison. Like, my dad's in prison, and it's up to me to get him out. That to me is what like really defines option C. Yeah. Well, what I kind of see happening is um, Ben is going to tell the dwarves the situation that you know they've got the black arrow. They have to get their dad, his dad out, and maybe Ben will distract the guards somehow. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, this is going to be interesting. I mean, uh, it will be an interesting kind of uh, judgment call to see how um, how that works out and how we end up scoring it in the end. Um, but um, yeah, because this is one of these things that is just completely made up. I mean, this right. is just completely. Yeah, we have no clue from the book whatsoever. Right. We really have yeah. no book answer. Although, I mean, I guess the only thing approaching it, and not that there's any book analog to this event. But the closest thing that we get are is are sort of characterizations, right? In particular, the characterization mm-hmm. of Bard, um, and uh, um, and we yeah. and, and just thinking about that. I mean, like you you think about the um, and this is one of the things that I will say that still, um, you know, even after reflecting on it for several months, um, still impresses me about the Desolation of Smaug, really about the Hobbit films as a whole is that there are still ways in which if you can get past many people have a hard time getting past the plot differences you know all the all the things that they've added in the new stuff that's going on but there's so many places where i feel like you can still see the fingerprints of the books like you can still tell that the writers are thinking of the books so like for instance you take one of the key elements of Bard's character, in fact, the solitary and defining element of Bard's character, um, all the way until the time when he pulls himself up out of the out of the lake, um, after the the destruction of Lake Town, is his grim voice. You know, he is the grim voiced yes. man. That's all he's ta- that's his, that's all he's referred to as uh, at the very beginning. And so they've taken that element of the grim voiced bard and made it, if you, you know, I mean, if you sort of back up and look at the second film as a whole, it's the centerpiece of Bard's character. 
you know, the, uh, of, of all of the bard related action in the second film, the core of that is his connection with the prophecy, which they've now made into a grim prophecy rather than a cheerful prophecy and, uh, and making bard the spokesperson of it and, and, and warning that danger is going to be coming. And, 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 mm -hmm. you know, we know then, and of course it, we will see it played out in the third film that his grim prophecy, which sets him against Thorin, um, it, mm -hmm. it is in fact perfectly true and perfectly justified. So again, like all of that stuff, you know, was all that stuff, you know, th this is, this is one of the reasons why I always have a reservation when people want to say things like, well, like, you know, obviously they're really just throwing aside the book and doing their own thing here. Y yes. On one level, they are doing that. But on another level, mm -hmm. I never feel that the movies completely forget the book. I think that there, yeah. there, you know, people might well say, and I, I'm, 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 I myself believe that in some ways they are failing, I think, to, uh, uh, to sort of preserve the spirit of the books in some of the ways they set out to. I, I've talked about this before. I'm thinking of generalizations that I've made about the, the comedy, right? About how they, they said oh, sure. from the beginning, like, you know, we want to maintain the lighthearted comical tone of the book. And I feel that the way in which they've done that has been kind of a failure um, and has not really done a good job at, it's not really succeeded in what they seemed to be trying to do, at least what they said they were trying to do. However, yeah. what I don't it, it, feel like it is, is just utterly leaving it behind and forgetting that it exists. Go ahead, sir. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, yeah, it's, it's very 21st century humor mm -hmm. in the movies. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes, very I agree. Hollywood Insta movies. Instead yeah. of, you know, the much more sort of late Victorian kind of humor. And I say that just because, uh, because it reminds me so much, the narrator, the, 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 the comical tone of the narrator reminds me so much of like the generation of children's books that came before it, you know, things like mm -hmm. Alice in Wonderland and Winnie the Pooh. And, um, and, um, uh, I mean, I think that Winnie the Pooh is a really great comparison for the Hobbit in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, in fact, uh, I once heard Verlin Flieger do a sort of extended comparison of Bilbo and Winnie the Pooh himself of, of those two <laughs> characters. Um, and sort of point out some sort of comical similarities between the two of them. Um, I don't know that I go quite so far, uh, as that, but it is really funny, uh, you know, to think about. Um, but anyway, it's, but I agree that the whole tone of that, I mean, if you, you read, you know, Alice in Wonderland and, and especially through the looking glass and you read Winnie the Pooh and you read The Wind in the Willows and you read, um, uh, you know, even if one is so adventurous as to read, which I hope everyone will, The Marvelous Land of Snurgs, um, by Wyke Smith, that's, uh, the, the, the narrator's voice, the, the kind of comedy in the narrator's voice, that's, that is more in line with the Hobbit thing. So, so I agree, the kind of, uh, slapstick humor and, and, uh, and even sort of, you know, the, the, you know, the sexual innuendo that we got with, uh, Kiwi and Toriel, you know, with the, you know, the jokes about Kiwi's pants and mm -hmm. whatnot. Um, you're right that that's, that's very, um, um, very 20th century or 21st century kind of humor. Um, and, and it, yeah. it, 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 it does, I think, um, in the end mm -hmm. kind of distract from what they're doing. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I do I do like what they did with Bard. Um, Me too. You know, it, they they took the very sparse um, descriptions in The mm -hmm. Hobbit and they've kind of fleshed it out. And I don't think there's anything that's really. I mean, they're not following the book to the letter, but you know, it's a scenario that is 
to me pretty plausible. Yeah, and and you know, I I this is another one of those things, you know, where I I have a lot of sympathy. I have a lot of sympathy for the screenplay writers because it's so I I feel like a lot of people who criticize uh film adaptations don't really understand how hard that is to do how hard it is to translate because you're i mean the compression you have no time and you have so few of the means available to uh, you know to a to a novel writer i mean as i've said several times people talk about like oh how are you going to take this little tiny book and make it into three epic films well guess what the three epic films are likely to be nine to ten hours total it takes almost 12 hours to narrate the book you know, the book is 12 hours long if you just read it. Um, and obviously you don't use that as your screenplay. But my point is even in, even in making, even if you did nothing other than to be a hundred percent faithful as much as you possibly could to the story of the Hobbit itself, it would take a long, you would still have to be doing a lot of, a lot of adaptation to keep it from being really, really long. And there's a bunch of things that you can do in a book that you can't do here. So coming back to Bard, what I, um, what I'm thinking about there is I think about the, the, the 180 degree shift that they made to the prophecy, right? I mean, there's sort of an obvious candidate, um, for criticism. If somebody's wanting to say, Oh, see, they're leaving the book behind and they're, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're doing violence to what the book said. Here, the book shows that the, the songs that they're singing, you know, the, the, the songs that they're sort of recalling from, from old times are songs of, happy prophecies, you know, that lead to the people becoming jubilant and, uh, and, uh, and quite overconfident, um, in the future, such that when Smaug is attacking and they're seeing the light of his fire reflected on the mountainside, they, they're, they mistake it or, you know, they sort of briefly try to convince themselves that this is the king and the king under the mountain forging gold and the river is running gold, um, instead of dragon fire, which is pretty dumb when you think about it. But anyway, um, the point is, um, the film has taken this, uh, this very cheerful and optimistic prophecy and has turn it absolutely on its head to a prophecy of doom and and certain destruction to come to Lake Town. And that on its, uh, you know, I, I I mean, I remember when we first heard that, um, you know, uh, parts of that in a trailer, and I was just blown away by that change. But again, you go back to the book and remember, we have the grim voiced bard, right? That's 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 where we start with Bard's character. And the narrator tells us, um, and this is exactly the kind of thing that's so difficult to do in films. Remember that short paragraph that we get about about Bard's character? Right about how he was always, you know, prophesying gloomy things and, uh, and, uh, but, but people knew his worth and, but despite the fact, you know, he, people, uh, knew his worth and courage and also mentioning that, by the way, he had often been correct when he was, uh, when he was prophesying, you know, poison fish and whatnot, uh, from before. Um, so, but again, that, that little aside, which only takes the narrator of the Hobbit in the book, a few sentences to give us some background on, um, in order to contextualize Bard's gloomy pronouncements. Um, it's very difficult to do that, uh, you know, unless you're going to use a, a comparable kind of voiceover intervention in a film, it gets is really cheesy. And, uh, you know, and so then, you know, like, what do you like, make it into dialogue, right? You'd like over, yeah. over, you know, have 
two people talking about Bard, like, oh, that wacky Bard and his prophecies, but, oh, you know, sometimes they're true, and gosh, he is really a worthwhile guy. I mean, it, it's really hokey. How do you do it, in a way, um, that can... So anyway, so, so what they do seems to me a really fascinating solution. You take the two elements that were there in the book. One element being that there's these prophecies about what, you know, that, that are going to be fulfilled when the king under the mountain comes back. And then you take the other element, which is Bard and his grim voice and his connection with, prof with prophecies of gloom, and you combine the two of them. And then that way you work in both elements, but you manage to do that with greatly increased efficiency and to convey some really powerful things. Um, and some of the, you know, and to kind of touch on some of the things which I think are thematically of great interest to the book. But again, you do so, you do so in, in, uh, in, in without, you know, over much hokiness and, uh, and in a comparatively short time. It's hard to do. And I was reminded of this again, speaking of Ender's Game as we were just a few minutes ago. You know, when I just did, uh, you know, I talked about the Ender's Game adaptation, the recent, uh, film from last year. Um, at the end of the uh, Ender's Game Mythgard Academy class, which we just finished a couple weeks ago. And, uh, and, and again, I was struck at, you know, I, I didn't think that was a very good adaptation, but again, it failed in the way that so many adaptations fail. It tried to be faithful to the book's story. Um, in fact, I, I felt that it, it, the problem was that it was over faithful. It just told like a, a breakneck, hard to follow in places version of the yeah. story because it tried to hit on as much as possible in a small space and got to develop so little of it. I felt, you know, and, and it's just, yeah. it's hard. It's hard. It reminded me of like, especially the later Harry Potter films. Um, but anyway, yeah. you know, th okay. they've avoided that, but, and, and, and they've avoided that in these films, I think in part through some of these innovations. Mm -hmm. Which I think are interesting, but anyway, I'm now veering. I've uh, veered several yeah. miles away from let's, the topic here. So let's get to the comments. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So from Jonathan Spencer, he says, "I'm torn between two scenarios, with either Bayan and the dwarves working together to break Bard out, versus Bard being brought to face the ma master of Lake Town in front of a crowd, and have the dragon attack begin during the confrontation." That would be very dramatic. That sure would. I have that. Yeah. Hmm. It's hard to imagine, though, how that could come about. Well, the only way in which I could see that happening um, is if the Lake Town scenes really begin with, I mean, it would have to come at the very, very start, right? Um, that we, we, we begin the Lake Town portion of the film with Bard being jerked out of his cell and brought before the master. Um, cause even in Jackson travel time, we still have a few minutes before Smaug hits Lake Town from where we stopped, right? Yeah. Um, so if we're, even if we're imagining Smaug in the air, we imagine we, we could get Bard dragged out back, you know, maybe to back to the town square or something. Um, and the master making accusations against him. Perhaps, though I'm not really sure that's plausible. But anyway, I'll come back to the plausibility of the question thing. And then, you know, so we have like essentially like the open air trial of Bart and then the dragon descends on the town in the middle of the trial. Um, you know, thus justifying whatever dire and gloomy things Bart is in the middle of pronouncing, uh, yeah. you know, during his yeah. trial uh, as a kind of, uh, you know, which would be a really interesting setup to 
if there is a you know conflict between the master of Lake Town and Bard after the the destruction of the town, you know, with the whole uh, you know up with the bowmen, down with money bags thing, if we get any 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 analog to that uh, in the mm-hmm. film. Um, so I agree with Jonathan. That would be a fantastically um, uh, dramatic uh, way for it to happen. Um, my biggest problem with it is that the capture of Bard by um, the master, like he did it personally. You know, I mean, he like is one who pit him. Yes. Hit, I mean, it looked like he was basically capturing him in a kind of a cloak and dagger way. It's hard to see him bringing him to an open trial um, because yeah, uh, right. he seemed to be capturing him illegally and not arresting him legally. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and for such a crowded town, I guess nobody saw that. Yeah. So. <laughs> yes, yes, Lake Town, the town where where everybody sees everything or nobody sees anything. There really seems to be no middle. That's right. Game. Orcs can overrun, and nobody has a yeah. Nobody has a clue. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Whereas, like, there's this incredibly ornate spy network which sees everything, and everyone's always looking over their shoulder in Lake Town, yeah. like the the place is full yeah. of eyes. But yeah, no, exactly. You yeah. can have a huge well, long wide-ranging fights with orcs and no one will even notice. Yeah. Well, it is the middle of the night, isn't it? When apparently there is no vigilance whatsoever in Lake Town, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. The spy oh, network of okay. the Master, apparently. Uh, they are. They, uh, it, they go to bed early. They're sound sleepers, yeah. yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, And then the next comment from Julian uh, Lewis Blair. I would expect Bane to rush to Bard's rescue, bringing him the Black Arrow with Smaug's firepower allowing for an escape through a burning jail. From there, I could imagine Bard rallying men to his aid, think Gandalf in the battle for Minas Tirith, or suffering personal loss with Bane or one of his daughters will die by Smaug's flames. The dwarves will hide in the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, Bane can't die. Because he is the ruler. Right. Of, uh, spoiler alert. He <laughs> is the ruler after Bard. Yeah, I mean, he is mentioned, and I'm I'm assuming. I mean, you know, goodness knows. I guess they could change it, but it seems a little unlikely. I mean, I I, I can't see why they would name. Um, they would give Bard first of all make Bard a single father. You know, make make him a widower. And have only one son, whose name is the same as the son who does, in fact, inherit yeah. from him uh, in the book, and then oh, only to kill off that son. I, I get you can see it. They could. It's not, it's not that they couldn't manage it somehow, and you know, but give him another yeah. kid by a second wife or whatever. But, but no, it 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 does seem to be really unlikely. I, I think that um, you know, Ban is on my. Or Bane, sorry, I should be consistent. Bane is uh, uh, is is on my short list of uh, people guaranteed to survive. To survive. You know, yeah. if, if, if I don't see, I don't see the daughters dying either. I think that I think you know, with the younger audience, that would be a little too much for them. You know, that's kind of true. Uh, I guess it depends on how gruesomely they died. But no, you're right. I mean, uh, uh, it's it's. Uh, I hadn't been thinking of that angle. Um, but I don't know. And they yeah, don't, probably not. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's really a purpose to one of them. Perhaps we, we, we it would be it would be over much of tragedy. Well, I think I think I was the one who made that macabre suggestion in in our in our uh, in our episode originally, and I think that my motivation for making it is simply um, thinking about. Uh, Bard approaching the Lonely Mountain completely ticked off mm-hmm. um, because yeah. he told Thorin destruction was going to come and now it has come. And it would be a way to really amplify 
you know, Bard being angry about this. You know, this is not, a, you know, that the, the destruction of Lake Town is not just going to be like a, you know, an all's well that ends better situation, you know, for Bard. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one way for them to convey that in a really efficient and powerful way would be uh, to have him lose one of his kids. Um, yeah. Or just to have the kids, you know, shivering on the shore because they lost their homes. True, true, true. Wow. Um, but, uh, uh, Julian yeah, is right. We'll I now have a new thing to cheer for in this, in the third film, which is that <laughs> we will see at least one dwarf dive headfirst down a toilet, uh, following up the toilet humor, very 21st century humor again as we're, well, you know, not that scatological bathroom humor hasn't been around for centuries, but, uh, anyway, um, uh, yeah, I'm hoping, I'm hoping for that too. Yeah. yeah so, okay. Yeah. So the next comment, um, Jeremy Gutilla, the early Lake Town discussion is reminding me of the scouring of the Shire, sheriffs and spies and the populist response to oppression. Could Peter Jackson be doing some subtle making up for having <laughs> skipped it in Lord of the Rings? <laughs> I love this idea. Um, yeah. It's like, uh, you know, this particular depiction of Lake Town is like Peter Jackson's penance for skipping the, <laughs> the scouring <laughs> of the Shire. Um, I don't think well i don't think he feels that bad about it for one thing but secondly i mean there there are there 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 seem to be some obvious differences the primary difference is that what we don't get i mean i I would i guess identify the primary element that seems missing to me in lake town um that uh seems to me a, a really essential element of the scouring of the shire is the the react yes the people in lake town are kind of oppressed but they the, the, it's not a question of them revolting against an outside force you know it's um the fact that you've got the big people coming in who are trying to um you know to to sort of roll over the hobbits and force them into servitude and to take advantage of them and then the hobbits not um you know going needing a spark to ignite them and then they're going to rise up and and uh, and show that they're not you know, so, so, uh, you know, harmless and such mm-hmm. big pushovers as, as the big people imagine that they are. That's the element that I don't see there in Lake Town. You know, there isn't, yeah. <clears throat> it's just a poor yeah. town, which is currently dominated by a wealthy and corrupt, you know, member of it. It's the, you know, you don't get that kind of external oppression thing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that yeah. for me is what makes it not very like the scouring of the Shire. Yeah. Well, plus the the tragedy of the scouring the Shire was that we saw the way the Shire was before. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then you know we we get to see the change in the Shire and it has a lot of impact. Whereas in Lake Town we don't know any different. You know, it's they only show us the way it is the way it is now. Yes. So, yes. And you know, yeah. th- there's a way in which you could say you could kind of extend that a little bit, and you say. Um, you think about the, you know, in this element of the book, which was actually greatly amplified in the film, that is that sense of the ancient glory of the town, which has diminished, you know, right? That even the of book Dale. of, of, yeah. of Dale and, but, but even of Asgaroth. And I'm thinking here mm. of the reference in the book to, uh, you know, during a drought, you could see the, the rotten piles of a, of a, of a much larger town, you know, that, that used to be mm-hmm. there and that those are replaced in the film 
with those large broken stone arches and everything that Bard is steering yes. the boat through, right? Yes, At the beginning. That's true. Um, so the sense of this used to be a really huge, uh, uh, you know, major town compared to the, you know, the comparatively small collection of rough wooden hovels that, that, you know, we see in Lake Town in the film, um, is, that contrast is much more pronounced. So the sense of we are returning to our glory of old, but the thing is, although you can say the parallel, you know, there's some kind of parallel in the, in the shapes, you know, what, what you were describing with the scouring of the Shire and, and with that, I think that the, in the end, they end up being, those end up being kind of different stories. We, we don't end up seeing, as you said, we don't see Lake Town beforehand. The returning to a past and legendary glory is a very different kind of story than the return, you know, the the healing of the Shire that we have already seen at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, yes. And yeah, and it's not an yeah. economic downturn in the Shire. Right. It's it's more it's oppression. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Things are not actually any worse in the Shire. Right. Um, you know. Has it been a bad year? Well, no, you know, the harvest has been good enough. Um, we make, we grows a lot of food, right? <laughs> um, uh, exactly, exactly. So, so there is again that sense of mere, this, uh, this external artificial, um, suppression of things, which is then overthrown, um, which is a very different pattern. Plus, I would say the, um, the elements of the Lake Town story are much more fairy tale. Uh, or much more fairy tale like than those of the scouring of the Shire. And I'm thinking in particular of the, again, that, that return to ancient glory, um, the, um, uh, the, the fairy tale, the, the sort of more fairy tale ish element of the prophetic song of, of, you know, the restoration of things that will come in the future. And then most important of all, um, Bard himself who transforms from an unnamed minor character. I mean, again, when he's the grim voiced man at the beginning of that chapter, you know, he's almost like one of the, you know, unnamed Shakespeare characters, you know, like first gentleman or something like that. Um, um, but he become, you know, he, he suddenly becomes this major character and not just a major character, but a major, um, he, he, he takes part in a major fairy tale trope. He becomes not quite the foundling, uh, long lost king's heir, but something close to it. You know, that image of, of the wife of Girion escaping, uh, you know, from the ruins of Dale with, you know, the, the infant, um, with the infant heir who is then raised in obscurity thereafter, you know, I mean, it's, um, you know, but yet he is the, the, you know, he is still, still nevertheless descended in, in, in true line from Girion and will return to become king. Um, you know, that's a, that's a very fairy tale trope. Um, mm -hmm. so again, in these ways, it seems to me that the whole shape of the Lake Town story, um, is quite different, but I will be interested to see, you know, again, coming back to, to, to Jeremy's point about the parallels, I will be interested to see how they handle the people of Lake Town. Um, and in particular, yeah. how they handle the people of Lake Town's reaction to the master. Um, because it could get a little scouring of the Shire-ish. Um, there definitely is room for, for some of the, for, for the spirit of the people of Lake Town to be kind of like the spirit of the hobbits that join in the revolt. Um, you know, when the travelers return in, in the end of the Lord of the Rings, I'm not sure 
that's how they're going to play it. But but there's definitely a chance for it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's go on to the next comment. Um, yeah. And this is a, this is about Legolas's magically appearing horse. Ah, uh, solution uh, from, to the to the, <laughs> to, the right. to the horse conjuring. Good. Yeah. From Jacqueline Smith. Okay, I admit that it took ten viewings to notice where the horse came from, but after his fight with Bolg and he wipes the blood from his nose, the camera angle pulls back and he watches Bolg escape on his warg. As Legolas heads to follow just to the right of center, there's a building. It's a stable, and if you look closely on a big screen, you can see horse heads bob up and down. It's harder to see on a small screen, but it's there though he must be the fastest horse thief ever. Yes, it's an elven thing. <laughs> so I'm going to I'm going to have to look next time. Yeah. I didn't notice that. Yeah, I didn't either. Uh, but you know, yeah. that I that that sounds very plausible. That's, yep. I, that's uh, that's good. Yep. That's good. Because well, I know, especially Trish is saying, where did that horse come from? <laughs> that's right. That's right. I think um, it ruined the whole movie for her. <laughs> but you know, it's it, it is uh I am unsurprised, though I did not spot this, uh, and, and I'm glad that Jacqueline yeah. did. Um, it doesn't surprise me because this is exactly the kind of thing that the kind of mistake Peter Jackson tends not to make. I mean, whatever else people say, yeah. it's one of the things that made the Lord of the Rings, the fact that they, they were very attentive to details mm-hmm. of this kind. You know, there do seem sure. to be many movie makers who will tend to just sort of slap things together and not really care all that much about, you know, are the, basically their their focus is on other things besides, you know, rigid internal Where did that horse come from? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yep. Um, but I, that seems to have been really a hallmark of, of you know, the Jackson Middle Earth films from the beginning. Um, and one of the things I feel that really endeared Peter Jackson and his team to Tolkien fans in the Lord of the Rings films was the fact mm-hmm. that they did show a lot of commitment to um, basically following Tolkien's lead in making on screen a really self-consistent world. Yes. That people could enter yep. into imaginatively. Mm-hmm. So this is the kind of lapse that would have shocked me if there hadn't been a solution to it, uh, basically. Um, because that's a pretty major gaffe, you know, to have Legolas suddenly whistle up a horse out of nowhere. Um, mm-hmm. so, yeah. so anyway, that, that is a, that is a, uh, a, a subtle a response, but yeah. it, that, that is definitely a good find by Jacqueline. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, our last comment for this episode from Jerry Michael. Most orcs get, at best, one swing at Legolas before dying. In the fight at Lake Town, Bolg fought Legolas to a draw, bloodied his nose, and is in the process of getting away. This marks Bolg as an unusually tough orc who was destined for major anti-elf action in movie three. (laughs) This leaves me thinking that Bolg is going to kill someone in the Legolas class of elves in movie three. The name bells of any combat distinction in the Hobbit movies are Thranduil, Legolas, and Tariel. Randul and Legolas are both alive in later Middle-earth history, so I predict that Bolg will kill Tariel. To have Tariel die in early or mid-movie three would be disappointing, so I predict Bolg kills her at the Battle of Five Armies. So there's some logic for you. There you go. This is a, this is a very <laughs> complex logical structure here. That's right. Leading to, a, to, a, to an inescapable conclusion. Yes, yes. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's not... I mean, I would... Uh, I would tend to agree with him. I think that Bolg is is a very good candidate for for killing Tariel. Yes. Yeah. I I, I was um, 
Well, I remain a little puzzled about the future destiny of Bolg. In some ways, I still haven't really fully wrapped my mind around the fact that he exists after all. That he reappeared at all. Yeah, the reappearance of Bolg, <laughs> being for me one of the one of the one of the great and refreshing surprises uh, right. of film too. Um, I was I was relieved that he is not a Zomborg. Uh, yes, we were so worried about. Yes. <laughs> Yes, though, you know, it's so funny how that became something that we were initially joking about because the idea was so horrifying. And then, like, soon I insensibly found myself cheering for it. And I don't know how that happened. Uh, I, 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 you know, I, I, I will confess to a, a small surge of disappointment that he didn't turn out to be a Zombork after all, despite the fact that I was all prepared to be <laughs> outraged by that. Um, but, <laughs> but anyway, I don't really know for sure where he's headed. And of course, we'll, you know, I should, we should probably save this a little yeah. bit, you know, this question I, more specifically because we'll come back it, to it. We talk isn't about there a German offline. word? Isn't there a German word for predicting something so you can be future you can be outraged in the future by it when it comes true? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know, but if not There should be there should be, yeah. <laughs> I would guess there probably is a German word for that. <laughs> um, Not shunned it, shut it. Oh, I can't even say it. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, but Make one up. I, I do think um, it is going to be interesting. I do, I, I do agree with Jerry that, I, that I, I suspect that that scene will come back to be significant later on. It may simply be that we will get a Legolas versus Bolg part two in the battle of the five mm -hmm. armies in which, uh, Bolg and Legolas fight and Legolas kills him the second time. It might be as simple as that. Um, but I would not expect it just to be left as a sort of random extraneous action scene. This is another one of my, uh, my meta objections, you know, my objections to people's objections about film two, um, is that many people have, you know, lament about the amount of action scenes, which I can completely sympathize with. Um, but then we'll sort of speak as if like the action scenes do nothing, you know, like there are two kinds yeah. of scenes. There are scenes that move the story and the characters forward and there are action scenes. Um, and I think that is absolutely untrue. Um, um, you know, again, I, as someone who loves action movies, uh, action scenes are really important to the story and often mm -hmm. um, set up really important elements um, in the story moving forward. Um, so, uh, yeah. But, yeah, and this is yeah. a good example of that, the yeah. confrontation between Bolg and Legolas in Lake Town. And so we'll we, see, we've maybe. set up a little personal. Yeah, absolutely. Personal vendetta here. Absolutely. And maybe something will come of it and maybe something won't. You know, it could be something as, as, as sort of simple as the two of them bearing a grudge and, and fighting again later on. It could be something more complicated as like, uh, you know, this scene serving as a parallel to another scene, you know, to another confrontation that's going to happen later on. Um, you know, and this one sort of foreshadowing that one in various ways. Who knows? Who knows? Um, but, uh, but I, I do agree. I mean, I, I do think that Bolg is, is clearly going to be uh, going to be significant. And I'm not. Yeah, still, I'm still need to think through. We will talk about uh, Bolg and Azog and, um, you know, in the battle later on. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not yet. Uh, I've not yet really thought through where I think they're going to go with those. But um, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's interesting to think about. 
All right. So for our German word, we we're nominating Schaden Outrage. Schaden Outrage. Schaden Outrage. There you go. Yeah, nothing quite like making a making a mashup of uh, <laughs> English and German words. That's guaranteed yeah. to please everyone, I'm sure. That's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, okay. I, I would just actually add. Uh, um, Art Lyon was just saying uh, uh, in the comments here that uh, Harrison Ford is known for his belief in action sequences as essential for displaying character and character development. Um, absolutely, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that. That's that's something that is, um, uh, I don't. I mean, I I made the comparison before, and and it's like I get the impression in hearing people talk about the action sequences that there are a lot of people who just unplug themselves intellectually from action. Like once a fight scene starts going on, they just seem to respond. Um, like somebody, and the comparison I made before is, you know, it's like people who are not interested in a sport watching a sporting event, you know, when, when they just, they, they, they don't even really follow the action. Um, you know, like people who don't like, you know, who, who, who don't like and never watch hockey, not even being able to follow the puck, not even being able to figure out who's on offense or defense, you know, and, uh, mm -hmm. the different kinds of experience that people have, you know, people who are really enthusiastic and follow hockey really closely and, uh, you know, can tell an enormous amount of things. And you've got somebody else watching exactly the same images and exactly. The, and to them, it's just this chaos and they can't even figure out what's happening. And they tend to people who are like that. I don't think they're less observant. I don't think they're less They just unplug themselves. They don't know what's going on. And they're just kind of like, and there's a lot of action. Is somebody going to, score a goal or something that I can understand. Um, and that's one of the reasons why yes. there are so few casual hockey fans, because if that's how you watch hockey, you're going to be in for a lot of disappointment. That's right. <laughs> you know, they're, like a, they're not, they're not invested in the drama. Exactly. It. Exactly. Um, but anyway, so with, with, with action scenes, I feel like it's the same way, you know, it, people who tend to be like, blah, 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 action, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, there's a lot you're missing if uh, if if you if you if you don't really engage with it. But anyway, we will see. We will okay. see uh, how that uh, how that pans out in film three. Yeah. Okay. So to get to the conundrum for this episode, uh, will Tariel be involved in breaking Bard out of jail? So I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and say no because I think Tariel is gonna take off after Legolas. I okay. think she's gonna. I think she's gonna leave Lake Town pretty quick. Hmm. Because really, she can't be hanging around with Keeley after their big moment. You know, that would be kind of anticlimactic. You know. You know. Be a little I had, awkward. I hadn't <laughs> thought about that, but you're right. Like, we don't really want to see them fumbling through their first date. You know, and and like that. You know that it would be nice. If what happened at the end of film two were like the apex of their relationship, essentially, um, that would be nice. Um, well, see, here's the thing. The thing is, I don't believe necessarily. I don't really. I don't think I believe in Toriel going off after Legolas. I don't think that's going to happen. But here's the other problem: is that I don't really have any clear theory for what Toriel <laughs> is going to do. I don't have any alternative suggestion to make. Um, I suspect that things are going to move quickly enough. Things could move... Uh, Legolas 
could move quickly enough that he's out of range of Lake Town when the dragon attacks and thus doesn't know about it. That I could believe. That Toriel mm-hmm. is going to finish up what she's in the middle of and then pack up and get the heck out of town prior to the dragon attacking seems to me less likely. Um, so I can't imagine that she's not involved at all. Um, but, um, but I think I would predict, so she, say, say that she and the dwarves have not moved very far from the tableau that they are in when, uh, the film ends, right? So we've just fought mm-hmm. off the orcs and Kiwi has just been healed and, um, and here we all are. Um, the dragon is going to attack pretty soon. Um, I would see her taking or attempting to take direct anti-dragon action, frankly. Like when I try to ask myself, what would Toriel do if the dragon attacks right then? You know, if, uh, you know, and I don't see her saying, let me go rescue Bard. I could see the dwarf saying that, but, um, uh, but I don't think I see Toriel doing that. So I'm going to say, no, I don't see her contributing and getting Bard out of prison, but for a different reason. I think she's going to be there, but I don't think she's going to be doing that. I see her either focusing on the dragon or focusing on like the refugees. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Brianna says, I can see her trying to keep the daughters and other townspeople safe. Exactly. I feel like she's either going to be attacking the dragon directly or doing that or both. That seems to me what I would, what I would most expect Toriel to do. Whereas the dwarves who have been with Bard, you know, might, uh, might be more inclined to, uh, to go try to find him or something. I guess I have yeah. to say that since I, I voted B that the dwarves would set him free. So uh, I suppose I'd better get the dwarves over there somehow or other, but um, yeah, I just, I just feel like it would be kind of a nice parallel since Legolas went after Tariel when she took off that she kind of goes after him because she knows he's, he's trying to track down these orcs and it could be that she, you know, steals a horse too and is away from town in time that she doesn't see the, she doesn't see the dragon attack or just sees it in time to go back. It's possible. Yeah. It's possible. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't believe it, but, it's, but it is, I mean, again, a lot hinges on how much time we're really going to be given. Yeah. Um, yeah. because of course, one thing that we don't know for sure is exactly how closely in sync the chronology was. That is, you know, we last saw Lake Town, um, wasn't, I mean, we, we last see Lake Town when Bard is in prison complaining to the jailers, hey, the dragon is coming. No, no, seriously, like very soon the dragon is going to come. And um, they feel the shaking. Right. And Toriel. But, but right. from when is that? You know, that could have been right. That could have been in the beginning when Bilbo had upset Smaug. Yeah. Like exactly how much time is going to elapse before the dragon comes in Lake Town, in Lake Town time is one of the things that's, that's really, that I don't feel I have pretty, a very good understanding of. Um, so for that reason, I, you know, maybe she could get away from Lake Town in time, but I'm not really sure. Um, yeah. 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 Okay. Okay, and we've had a uh, we've had. Let's see if anyone else wants to vote in our uh, in our our live poll here uh, before we close it. We've had uh, a uh, we have a landslide. Yeah, it looks we like. do. We do have a landslide, um, which is interesting. That's this. This is to me a slightly counterintuitive landslide. I have to admit, um, and it is no. Eighty nine percent say no. Eleven say yes. Um, and I'm a little surprised because I would think that yes would be kind of the intuitive answer. 
I mean, there she is in Lake Town. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, on the whole, the most competent person in Lake Town, as far as, like, the person with the highest level of physical skills currently in Lake Town. Uh, Bard needs to be got out of prison. You'd think that would be... Uh, um, yeah. I, I would sort of think yes would be the default answer, really. But... Uh, we we convinced them otherwise. Yeah, apparently we've just swayed everybody. <laughs> you swayed the vote. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, let's, let's move on. Yeah, yeah let's should, move on to episode three point oh five. Perhaps I should be slightly um, less digressive uh, in the. Well, I'll try to keep in line a little better yeah, this time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so the there's riddle... some things I'd like to say about the meaning of life. Sorry, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, sorry, how about sorry. next time? <laughs> right, right. Okay, okay. How about on riddles? Uh, how about on the main riddles in the dark podcast? <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, that's that's that. that's normally yeah. where I where I where I, where I keep that. <laughs> okay, so uh, the riddle for three point oh five. Uh, what will the master be doing during Smaug's attack? Um, A. Escaping Lake Town, which is the book answer. B. Cowering somewhere in town. C. Shouting orders while obviously staying clear of danger. D. Moving around in the middle of the action. Or E. None of the above. And everyone said B. Corey, Trish, and Dave all said B. And I am going to say A. A. Because I think he's going to get in his little boat and he's going to be out of there. As soon as, he, as soon as his life could possibly be in danger, he is going to be out of there. So That, of course, is the book answer. And uh, yes. it, it also, the majority of our uh, listeners during the live episode said A as well. Um, so in going with the, yeah. mon with the minority of the co-hosts, you're going with the majority of the whole, um, well, our listeners are very smart. It's and true. So... It's true. Goodness <laughs> knows there's plenty of track record to show that our listeners on mass are much better at this than I am, uh, in particular. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so certainly siding with the majority over me seems like, you know, the, the smart call. Um, yeah, I just think. I just think it would be it would be more of a traumatic betrayal yeah. for him to get in a boat and take off. Well, you know, here's the here's 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 an objection. My okay. objection is, will that be seen as a terrible thing? Will it be obvious that that's a terrible thing? I'm wondering if a modern audience would respond with the same kind of outrage to the master getting in his boat and fleeing the town as it was apparent, you know, the, whether or not the initial audience of the book felt that this way, clearly the way that the people of Lake town respond, like they all clearly are operating under the assumption, like the leader of the town mm -hmm. is the one who should be taking the risks. You know, he is the one who should be leading us, who should be in the forefront of the battle, the last to retreat. Um, and he is failing at that model. I'm not sure people have that model of leaders and in particular of political leaders anymore. Well, I think that it depends how the characters react to it in the yeah. movie. Yeah. But also, you know, it's kind of like the captain. The captain's not the first one in the lifeboat, you know, by himself with maybe his first mate, you know. I mean, right. he's got to at least direct people to lifeboats. So um, but I think see, it's, a sm it's a small enough town that they, you know, it's not like the president going to hide in the mountains somewhere. You know, I, I think it's... Right. Um, but see, that's exactly what I'm thinking of. Like, I think yeah. that the modern world takes for granted the fact, like, if if 
people, you know, like if there was a, if there was a, uh, um, you know, some kind of, you know, terrible destruction uh, on the East coast of America and Americans were, you know, discovered that before it started breaking out, the president whisked himself away to a top secret bolt hole somewhere that had been specially prepared to save his hide. Would Americans as a whole feel outraged by this, that that was a failure in leadership by the president? And I don't think so. So like thinking about the ship captain thing, you're right on the one hand, like there is that, like that model of like, and the captain shall go down with the ship. But you know, it kind of seems to me like modern politics has prepared, like if we had, if, if we, if there were like a, a, uh, a, a, a ship disaster film, which featured, you know, and like during the course of the film, you discovered that like the captain and the top, uh, officers had their own private lifeboat, you know, which, uh, which was probably even a better lifeboat than was for the rest of the people so that they could escape if the ship went down. Would people be totally outraged? I'm not sure they would. I feel like that's the kind of, it, well, it's the kind of thing we expect political leaders to, to, to consider that like naturally they've thought of their own escape route first. Uh, and I mean, I'm not sure, like basically I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that we're conditioned to expect self-sacrificial leadership anymore. Well, I don't think, I mean, I think it's going to be such an egregious case that it's not going to be, you know, it's, it's, he's not going to be doing it for the good of the town. He's going to be doing it to save his own skin. Right. And Art Lyon has, has a, um, idea if he escapes by boat then um then his his boat can get uh sucked down by smog because um you know that would that would kind of get rid of the problem of what to do with the the master of lake town you know then bard is free to kind of take over too right so right, right. so he yeah. would get his just reward so yeah. Yeah. you know i think i think a lot of it is you know just the attitude the movie is going to have towards what he's doing yeah it will yeah. be really interesting I, I don't know i mean uh brian biggs was saying you know in the book the master is abandoning the town he's not looking out for his own survival so he can lead his people i agree but i think that's also true of presidential bolt holes too um you know i mean whatever like uh i i, I, mean, I don't want to I don't want to digress onto the subject of modern politics. That's for sure. Uh, there's a digression <laughs> I'm going to avoid if I can. But, um, yeah. but again, I'm just, I'm not sure. I, I, I mean, yes, of course, I, I certainly agree that that's what's happening in the book. Though again, a cunning, uh, a cunning political maneuverer like the master of Lake Town in the book, um, can also easily spin that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, I agree something, something egregious, um, things tend to, to be ratcheted up on film anyway. Um, and, uh, I mean, here's a, here's a, here's an almost complete non sequitur comparison. Um, but, uh, oh, good. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking of a moment. This is, a um, but th- for, for, for various strange reasons, this is the film scene that this question makes me think of. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and this is a, uh, this is a Jane Austen comparison in the oh, Mansfield great. park film. That came mm-hmm. out in, I think it was in the nineties or maybe like 10 years yeah. ago. The one, yeah. the, the sort of ridiculous one that featured Fanny Price, like galloping on horseback through the rain. Oh, sure. You know, yep. which would have yep. like, killed Fanny Price in less than two minutes, uh, in the book. <laughs> like the one who could barely walk across the field in the sun without going into a dead faint. Anyway, um, that, 
that that film version. At the end, mm-hmm. um, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't read Mansfield Park, um, at the end of Mansfield Park, Mary Crawford, the sort of unscrupulous female anti-heroine of, of Mansfield Park, says something appalling, which finally reveals uh, to, uh, to, um, to Edmund her, 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 um, her complete, uh, you know, how, De- how callow depravity. she Depravity, yes. yes. Her depravity. And the comment she makes is merely that, you know, maybe she doesn't think it was, it's not necessarily a terribly bad thing that her brother ran off with Mariah. It's like, it's, it's like a very slight thing, like maybe it's not like the end of the world that somebody ran off and committed mm-hmm. adultery. Um, and it was obvious when they did the Mansfield Park film, like it was not enough. Like they knew that that yes. line would not have the appropriate impact that it would like, it might even just go straight over people's heads and, and that, the, you know, that, so they had to, they had to instead make her say something about like speculating about using the brother's money when he was dead, you know, like that, you know, they, they, they had to go way out of their way to ratchet mm-hmm. up how outrageous was the thing that she said because they felt that modern audiences, apparently they felt that modern audiences wouldn't react strongly enough to what she actually said in the book. I'm kind of feeling that same way here, that if they depict it exactly as they showed it in the book, I don't think it's going to have that big enough. Like if we just see a shot of him getting into his boat and leaving, even with him kind of looking in a cowardly way over his shoulder, I don't think that's going to have a visceral impact um, on audiences enough to, to sort of put him in the, in the moral position that he was in, in the book. I think he's got to do something worse. He's either got to be stabbing somebody in the back or actively harming someone in some way. I suspect they're going to ratchet up the sliminess and horribleness of the Mm. master more than just, ah, he, he proved himself to be not a true leader who is willing to jeopardize his life for his people. Um, I don't, I, I mm-hmm. just, I just don't think that's, I, I, I my suspicion yeah. is that's not going to be enough. That's why I disbelieve in okay. a, in sort of like a purist a answer um, in the films. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you're thinking, if you're predicting they're going to ratchet things up, then that's pr- probably a very good prediction. <laughs> <laughs> it seems a little safe, doesn't they, it? <laughs> it seems pretty safe. Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. So, um, okay. Well, let's, go, let's move on to the comments here. Okay. Um, uh, we should do a podcast on Jane Austen, by the way. You know, so we can, I, we can save been, that for another time. I, I love think, Jane. Gosh, Austen. this is like the third or fourth time I've digressed to Jane Austen in Riddles in the Dark in the last couple months, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But anyway, All yes, right. yes. So Halstein, I can't pronounce the name solely, says I chose A. I don't see any reason to alter this. It will ruin the master's reputation and open the way for Bard. This will also make book fans happy, as I think everything direct and directly taken from the book makes the book's fans happy. Well, that's true. Having the master just hide in a building will not be as satisfactory. I think they will use Fry better than that. So that's kind of that's kind of a summary of the A the A people's opinions. I think. Yeah, yeah. the The question of using Fry better is, I think, a really good point by Halstein here. I, I and I'm not sure. Um, but see, the thing is, to some extent, you could you could give um, you know, Stephen Fry a little bit more um, scope mm-hmm. with almost any options, depending on how you, how you did it. Right. Um, uh, you know, he says having the master just hide in a building will not be a satisfactory since I predicted that I, I feel I have to defend it. Um, <laughs> the reason I think yeah. that it would be more satisfactory is that it shows, it shows better than 
The master prudently left town when obviously the town was going to be destroyed. Everyone who could leave was trying to leave, except for Bard. Now, that makes Bard heroic, um, but that doesn't necessarily make everybody who fled horrible, I think. Um, and again, I'm not arguing about the fact that it was obvious that the, that the master, by doing that in the book, was obviously showing himself to be bad and a bad leader and everything. My point is, I think that on screen... It's going to be hard. It's going to be harder to rally the sympathies of modern people who are less steeped in the kind of heroic traditions that Tolkien is appealing to in The mm. Hobbit in that moment. I think it's going to be harder to um, induce them to feel that fleeing when the town is in flames is yeah. a bad well, thing to do. But to have the master crippled and paralyzed by terror so that he becomes utterly helpless—that makes him not a wicked person, but it but it does reduce him. We, when you talk about his stature as a leader, um, mm-hmm. it's going to be it's it's going to yeah. make him seem more manifestly, even more manifestly, a fraud if he attempts to maneuver and recover himself later on. We will see what is like truly at his heart. And in the end, at the end of the day, I don't think that truly at his heart, the master of Lake Town is like a wicked, evil schemer. I think he's a a small time. Um, he's just a really small person uh, trying to make himself big. That's why he has that huge portrait portrait painted of himself uh, mm-hmm. in his own bedroom. Um, yeah. And so I, I suspect, therefore, that the the attack on Lake Town will reveal him as the small person that he is. Yeah. Well, I think in any case, there'll be um, there'll be the juxtaposition of how Bard is reacting to the attack right. and how the right. the master is acting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. All right, well, let's move on. Uh, we have kind of a longer comment now from Philip Menzies, and this this is going to move us a little bit away from the um, from the Master of Lake Town. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand and appreciate the move of the films away from fairy tale towards epic, and I've always expected this in these movies and accepted it too. What I see in this is a diminishing of Bilbo's role in the whole adventure. There are so many aspects of Bilbo's tale that are just pure luck. The trolls deciding not to eat him straight away, the main one being the finding of the ring while groping around in a passage in the dark, the rescue by the eagles, the fact that Bilbo now had a magic ring got them out of so many predicaments, predicaments, and most notably, the overhearing of the revelation of Smaug's weak spot from Bilbo to the dwarves by the thrush. In light of the recent Unfinished Tales session, I can see that Tolkien tried to move these so-called lucky aspects more into the idea that there was a broader scheme of things playing out, most of it unconsciously by Gandalf, but you can see the hand of the Valar in this. What I always took away from my reading of The Hobbit was that, apart from the many times Bilbo kept the quest going through brains and or the ring, he was the reason it succeeded because he found the weak spot in Smaug's armor. Without that knowledge, the dragon could not be slain. And that's kind of been taken away from the movie. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. I haven't seen any thrush, nope. um, you know, flying to Lake Town to tell Bard about the weak spot. Yes, right. And not only that, but they already know. You know I mean, we heard about the weak spot in Smaug's armor that's right. at Bard's house. You know, so it's not it's not Bilbo. Yeah. It's not yeah. 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 Bilbo's role there is completely removed. And it is really interesting and it, it it's it's one of the things that leads me I think in particular of that final shot of Bilbo looking out over Smaug's pro, you know progress as he flies towards Lake Town and Bilbo saying what have we done? The way in which on the one hand he's taking 
responsibility for that, you know, by speaking in the first pl person, um, although the first person plural, saying we, but still he's speaking in the first person, taking responsibility for the imminent destruction of Lake Town. But, um, but yet he's not done so much. Um, he is clearly the mover. I mean, you go through um, in the book from when they leave Lake Town until you know they hear from uh, from Roach about the death of the dragon. Bilbo does almost everything. You know, he is he is uh, there's there's almost nothing anybody else does um, in their group. Um, Bilbo has instead been put very much on the side in a way which makes sense in the context of the story that they're telling in the film, because the return to Erebor is Thorin's story, and they've made it more about Thorin. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's a defensible choice, but it does leave the question, so what about Bilbo? And where is Bilbo? And then, in my mind, then, what will Bilbo be? What will he be doing? And this, can, you know, we just on Friday talked about the Thief in the Night chapter, um, and the giving over of the Arkenstone. And, and, and it's one of the things that makes me so uncertain about how that idea is going to play out in the third film, mm -hmm. because I don't really have a clear sense myself of where Bilbo stands in relationship to the quest. Um, and I'm not saying that I think that they're just not paying attention to this at all in the film. I mean, you remember back to film one, Bilbo's mm -hmm. relationship to Thorin and company and to the quest as a whole was one of the central themes of that first film, culminating mm -hmm. with his speech after they're reunited on the other side of the Misty Mountains. You know, the speech that Bilbo makes where he says, you know, I'm going to help you get your home back. You know, when he when he, he sort of shows that he finally realizes what uh, what they're talking mm -hmm. about and, and what's going on. And he now gets the quest and he's um, he's internalized it and, and, and he's taking part in it and not just on some, you know, adventure that he doesn't understand. And then, of course, his acceptance mm -hmm. by Thorin on the Carrick. So, again, th those dynamics were the centerpiece, one of the centerpieces, anyway, of that first film. And in the second film, Bilbo's role was much more confused. It was not at the center of the second film. Thorin's return to the mountain was at the center, I think, of the second film. Um, but in the third film, I suspect, or, well, I don't say I suspect. One could speculate. One can imagine that Bilbo could mm -hmm. be closer to the center again. Um and I will be. I would be really interested to see how that because, or really, you know, another way of thinking about it would be those two things coming into conflict: Thorin's story and Bilbo's story, and um, and what's going to be happening with that. But, mm -hmm. but, but, uh, but I mean, I certainly do agree with Philip that that shift um, from making Bilbo the center. You know, I think about. Um, you remember that line in The Hobbit when uh, um, Bilbo says that uh, um, when. I'm trying to remember it word for word. But I don't quite remember it word for word. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, um, Bilbo's sort of pointing out about how uh, nobody even remember. You know, when, when they're talking about you know the claims for, you know, Bard's claims for killing the dragon, and you know who has the right to the treasure and everything else. And you know, Bilbo sort of thinks to himself that like no nobody remembers the fact that it was him that discovered the dragon's weak spot all by himself. Uh, yes. And then the narrator comments on it and says, you know, and uh, you know, and in fact, no one ever did remember this right yes. uh you know it's it's kind of funny to see the film be like a an ironic fulfillment of the narrator's exactly there. exactly <laughs> yeah um yeah yeah um well yeah i i agree with you i think bilbo is going to play an important role um with the arkenstone in film three um so but i do i regret the loss of the thrush i mean we saw the thrush 
knocking at the door, but mm -hmm. that was that was the end of the the thrush. So, yeah, pretty or, much. Or no, actually, it's not the thrush. It's um the raven, isn't it? No, um, it's the thrush. I, I yeah, can't remember now. We did see the thrush. We did see the thrush uh, in 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 film one. Knocking. Um, but, but the and it's a isn't it a thrush that flies to Lake Town and it and is it, yes, yes yes. And the thing is, um, the thing though that interests me, you know, thinking about the the other part of Philip's comment here, um, the films have not, and this is one of the first and biggest surprises I got in seeing film one. The film has not downplayed that um the 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 role of prophecy and um the sort of air of destiny and some vague sense of supernatural intervention that the story has um you know philip is right that not only was that there in the hobbit it it increased over time um mm -hmm. it's one of the patterns i think that you can see in tolkien's revisions to the hobbit um is that he brings that out more uh as time goes on but um, the film, although it does eliminate many of the particular elements through which Tolkien communicated that, um, it has not just ditched it, just ditched the theme, just ditched the idea um, of the the sort of and, and, and instead it has kind of foregrounded prophecy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't I don't know if modern audiences would really get that whole luck thing right. as being from a greater hand, I think. It's a very subtle thing. Even in the book, it's a very subtle thing. So mm -hmm. subtle that Tolkien has to come out and draw explicit attention to it in the final page of the book and the conversation between That's right. Gandalf and Bilbo. If Gandalf and Bilbo don't have that conversation, how many people notice ever? I mean, it's... it's. Mm -hmm. um, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know that I would have noticed it if it hadn't been for that conversation, which really shines a spotlight on it. Um, but absolutely, it, it is. And so imagining that... Um, Again, especially on screen, would be really hard to to see them mm -hmm. conveying that. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go on to our final comment for this episode from Adam Nelson. I have a theory based on some of the discussion in episode 3.05 of Riddles in the Dark. You were talking about how the survivors of the attack on Lake Town would think that since Smaug showed up, that the dwarves who went to Erebor all died. What if Feely, thinking Thorn is dead and he's the rightful king now, promises Bard a portion of Smaug's hoard for killing Smaug. That's when they get then when they get there, Thorin says that Feely's promise isn't binding on him. This would be a way of giving Bard a good claim on the treasure and be reminiscent of the dispute between the elves and the dwarves that led to the the elves not helping when Smaug took Erebor. It could also set up a discussion or some dissension between members of the company that could contribute to Bilbo's decision to steal the Arkenstone. It's a fascinating idea. Um, I, I feel like we voiced something kind of similar to this during our episode, but I don't think we pursued it. And then the reason we didn't mm -hmm. pursue it is that in, in my mind, it's sort of in the category of um, one of the many complexities that the addition of separate parties and points of mm -hmm. view to the siege of the Lonely Mountain really adds. Yeah. I mean, changing it from essentially a four-point problem, right, where you've got Thorin, Bard, the Elven King, and Bilbo, right? Those are the really the mm -hmm. only four different camps or points of view. And the Elven King even is himself almost invisible once he gets to the Lonely Mountain. I mean, he, 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 he doesn't seem to have a separate agenda from Bard's, as far as we can tell, in the book. Um, yeah. Again, mm -hmm. he does when he sets out for the mountain, but he doesn't seem to when he gets there. Um, 
in the film, the way that those four different points have been multiplied into like 12 different points Mm -hmm. with the internal divisions in each of the three camps and, um, and all of those other conflicts within conflicts and complexity of allegiances Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and divided allegiances and all of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, that could blow up in so many different ways that it makes speculation really difficult. But this is one, this is one that, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those possible scenarios given all of the, 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 the different, the large number of possibilities now. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's it's one of, well, I think, I think this would give, um, you know, more, it would give more of a reason for the dwarves to have been in Lake town. Mm-hmm. You know, if 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 Felia or one of the dwarves strikes a bargain with Bard, um, you know that then that would be you know not just for Keeley to fall in love with Tariel and for him her to save him, but another reason why they they've been in Lake Town, right? For this to happen, right? So yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating possibility. So right. good, good. Um, the one other thing I would mention from this comment, um, I like that idea of having dissension among the dwarves be one of the things that contributes to Bilbo's decision to steal the Arkenstone. Um, I, it's more relevant to the discussion we had uh, this past Friday in episode eight, I think it was. Um, but, um, you know, one of the issues that we were talking about there was the way in which there is an element of Bilbo wanting to save Thorin in particular and the dwarves in general from themselves um, that leads mm-hmm. him to give over the Arkenstone. And certainly if we do see them at each other's throats, you know, if we see anything that looks like a real division between Fili, between, you know, Fili and Kili and Thorin, um, mm-hmm. it would be easy to see that um, yes. you know, contributing yeah. to the to the decision that that is a really interesting idea yeah and trish brings up that um thorin uh made a point of feely being the heir in film two when they were getting in the boat leaving lake town and so um you know that could that could point to something happening in lake town right later on yeah i agree with trish that uh references like that you know that kind of a pointed reminder to the audience by mm-hmm. the way in case you haven't thought this through feely is thorin's heir um yes it's true that that kind of thing is likely not um just you know there's there's that's going to be relevant later most likely um but i could but i could see several different possible relevances for this you know one could simply be uh one is something that already happened, which was, or the thing that happened immediately, which is the way in which Feely, as the you know, as Thorin's heir and and as a future king, having just been chided and told to basically, you've got to start thinking like a king now, Feely, instead of thinking you know, uh, just like blindly and emotionally. And Feely's response, which was in essentially, no, actually, the kingly thing to do is for me to stay here with him. Um, mm-hmm. The kingly thing to do is the more sacrificial thing, not the more ruthless thing. Um, yeah. So one could say that that there's already been payoff by establishing Feely in contrast with Thorin um, and what that accomplished in the in the development of Thorin's character in the mm-hmm. second film. True. Um, but at the yeah. same time, I can also see that being relevant either in this way, um, you know, that uh, that Adam is suggesting, or it could be relevant in a different way. Just simply the fact that it's going to give it's going to make it. Um, when the, when the dwarves are up there watching the destruction of Lake Town and 
either assuming or at least fearing that Feely and Kiwi have been killed, and the others, but that Feely and Kiwi have been killed by the dragon um, in the destruction of Lake Town, um, they, it's going to hit them particularly hard because Feely and Kiwi represent uh, not just the restoration of Erebor, but the future of Erebor. Um, mm-hmm. So the death of both Feely and Kiwi would be a much bigger blow, I think, to the, that party of dwarves than the death of any other two members um, of that party. Yes. But that emotional impact is not going, would not be so so clear to the viewing audience, I think, if not for the fact that, th- you know, we had been reminded of their status as Thorin's heirs. True, true. Okay. Well, uh, let's wrap it up with the conundrum for this episode. Uh, will the Lake Town Dwarves arrive at the Lonely Mountain before the siege begins? Mm. Um, and I said yes, because I think once once the dragon dies, they're not going to want to wait for everybody to get packed up and go up there. I think they're they're going to want to get up there to find out what happened to their kinsfolk, if nothing else. And since since Keeley is going to have a miraculous recovery, oh, yeah, he'll he, be fine. He'll be right as rain. Yeah, in the morning, yeah. he's barely going to have a limp. <laughs> That's right. I think I think they're going to be up there pretty quick. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, th- this seems to be the, the, you know, one of the, one of the primary, um, factors, I think, in this is obviously the role that we see them playing. We've thrown out a bunch of possibilities in the past. You know, are they going to be held as hostages? Are they going to come to the camp in the company, you know, sort of amicably in the company of the men of Lake Town? Especially if they rescue Bard, as I think they will, and, uh, you know, and Bard sees them, those four dwarves, as being clearly on his team, even if he's still ticked off at Thorin. Um, Bard's animosity could turn more towards Thorin personally. Um, uh, and even Fiwi and Kiwi themselves could develop, um, sort of divided loyalties, or divided sympathies at least. Um, or are they just gonna take off as soon as the uh, dragon fight is done and run up to the Lonely Mountain to find out, uh, you know, that, that would be kind of funny, you know, Thorne and the rest of them are like, oh my gosh, the dragon has attacked Lake Town, Fuey and Keeley and everybody else might be dead. Quick, somebody run down there and find out what it is. And then Fuey and Keeley are down there like, oh my gosh, the dragon just came out of Erebor. I wonder if Thorne is dead. We must run up there to find out if they're still alive. And, you know, you see the two search parties comically crossing in the middle. And, they meet in the middle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or not meeting in the middle, you know. Um, um, but I, 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 yeah. I, I, I sort of doubt that, but, um, yeah, I just, I don't see them waiting until the last minute. I mean, if nothing else, as Trish suggests, they'll want to leave to warn Thorin that the, that the men and the elves are coming. Right. Right. So, and presumably it'll take a little time for, um, Thranduil to get up there too. Yeah. You know, at least five or 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> maybe even three quarters of an hour. Uh, so yeah, anything could happen. Um, I suspect I'm going to say yes, they will. And the reason I'm going to say yes is that I think, I think the most dramatic impact for the story can be gotten out of a divided, divided sympathies and perceptions among the dwarves within the Lonely Mount than to have some of the dwarves on the opposite side of the, you know, battle lines. 
Um, mm-hmm. And also just yeah. flat because I don't think they would stay there unless they're being physically held captive. You know, unless they're actually being held as mm-hmm. prisoners for hostage, which I don't think I believe in. Um, not if they not if they get Bart out of prison. I don't think he's going to hold them captive. Right. Nor. Um, yeah. I mean, of course, and then it just depends on what role we see Thranduil playing in the army, um, which mm-hmm. is a, a riddle we'll get to in our next uh, in our next episode, our next super derogatory episode. But mm-hmm. um, okay. Yeah. Well, it and it looks like the audience is is split fifty fifty yeah, as of so right you now. Wanna, you guys want to still still some people haven't voted want to vote? Oh no. They're saying no. Last chance. Oh, 71% no. Hmm. Well. Okay. Our our silver tongues must be a little tarnished. Totally failed to. Maybe maybe we're just been talking a little too long here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Or maybe they're thinking it's a safe bet if we're saying one thing, just just say the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it looks like with 89% voted, 63% have said no, and 38% have said yes. So that's that's pretty resounding. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's pretty resounding for the poll. So I went ahead and closed that. It is, yeah. There we wow. go. There we are. All right. Okay, well, okay. we'll see. Well, that's it. Yeah, that's it for another episode of the Super Erogatory. Do you have any announcements or anything to make, Corey? Uh, the only uh, the only main thing that I would say is just to remind people that a new Mythgard Academy class is starting um, this coming week. In fact, uh, tomorrow in real time, um, by the time everyone hears the recording of this, it will have already begun, but will still be near, only near the beginning um, of our class on the Book of Lost Tales Part 1. So the Mythgard Academy has elected Book of Lost Tales Part 1. The first of the History of Middle-Earth series. Um, so we are beginning an exploration of the early roots of Tolkien's Silmarillion material. Um, it is an absolutely fascinating chance to look at um, uh, to look at Tolkien's early thinking um, and to begin to see how a lot of his ideas have grown over time. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's just great. I know that the History of Middle-Earth is, if the Silmarillion is a hard read, the book The History of Middle-Earth is a much harder read for a lot of people because it's got mm-hmm. all the, you know, sort of scholarly apparatus of endnotes and commentary and everything else. And I know it's, it's kind of a dry read for a lot of people. Um, so I would strongly recommend taking the opportunity to go through and read it together uh, with a bunch of people. And we'll be talking about it uh, weekly for the next few months. So we're going to be starting with the foreword of the Book of Lost Tales, part one, and chapter one on the Cottage of Lost Play um, for tomorrow night, actually. And then we'll be moving on to the next two chapters for the following week. So for people who haven't found it, just go to MythGuard.org and look under the Academy uh, tab, um, uh, and you will find uh, the complete course schedule and the registration links for the Book of Lost Tales, part one. All right. Well, great. You want to go ahead and bring us out, Corey? Okay. I, oh, wait. Uh, what Doug has just asked a, a quick question. He says, uh, when is the Dune class? Because it is true that Dune by Frank Herbert was also elected, and we're going to be doing that uh, book right after we finish Book of Lost Tales Part 1. Um, it's going to be after. 
<laughs> we're finished with the Book of Lost Tales. Is <laughs> my is my highly specific uh, uh, answer. Um, we're gonna be. Um, we're, I'm planning to come to the end of the Book of Lost Tales by uh, like the middle of July, about. So look for the start of the Dune class uh, near the end of July or the very beginning of August. Is uh, would be my prediction for that. So that's a good question. All right. Okay. Very good. Well, everybody, as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.